Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There's a lot of discussion today about the power of activism. Well, Shannon Watts is a living example of it. In reaction to the Newtown Massacre of 2012, she started an organization called Moms Demand Action on her Facebook page. It's now six million strong, a counterpoint to the NRA, a force in American politics, and a lever that has changed policy in states and municipalities all over this country. I sat down with Shannon Watts this week to talk about her life, her journey, the movement she leads, and where we stand on the gun issue today. Shannon Watts, so good to see you. Prefer to do these things across the table, but this is the new norm, Zooms. So very happy to see you today. You lead this movement that you helped uh, create, that you really created. Uh, Now you have 5 million followers, 300,000 active uh, volunteers. Uh, But interestingly, you grew up in in upstate New York, and you grew up in a family where guns were prevalent. I did. Um, You know, both of my uh, grandfathers were World War II veterans, uh, both avid hunters, both gun owners. Um, It was never considered in any way controversial in our family. Um, and, and also I grew up in, you know, as you said, in upstate New York, um, uh, where it's a culture of, of hunting and a, a pretty conservative culture, I would add. So this was sort of normal um, where, where I lived and, and in my family. Did you hunt? Did your dad ever take you out hunting? Did you use guns? So my my parents were not gun owners. Um, guns was not really a discussion we ever had. They certainly never asked about it when I went over to people's homes, uh, like I do as a parent. Um, so no, I did not grow up hunting myself. Um, it was more of knowing gun owners and living in a, in a society and in a community in upstate New York where Hunting and gun ownership was really the norm. You grew up in a in a Catholic family. You went to Catholic schools. You were um, deeply embedded in, in in Catholicism. Your dad was a seminarian until his mid twenties. Yes, from thirteen, he decided uh, as one of five boys in a in a Irish Catholic family that he was the one who was going to uh, go into the seminary and become a priest. But but he didn't. Why didn't he? You know, it's it's interesting. It's never really a discussion that we had other than um, I think he just decided that, you know, that lifestyle was not for him. And, and he married not too long after he left the seminary. So I'm, I'm guessing it had something to do with uh, wanting to be with women, is my guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's often the way those stories end. But you, uh, later in life, you... Uh, you took up Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, and I was I was wondering a why uh, you were attracted to Buddhism and and why uh, Buddhism was more uh, attractive to you than Catholicism. Well, you mentioned you know that I was very embedded in in uh, the Catholic religion, and I was from the moment I was born. Even though my my mother was agnostic, uh, my father was so devout, and um, being Catholic was a huge part of my upbringing. Uh, whether it was school or or mass on Sunday or religious training. And honestly, while I understand that it's um, a, a soothing balm for many who are, are Catholic, like my father, it was not for me. It never felt like home. It never felt comfortable. I didn't understand the, the rules, and I, I didn't necessarily believe um, in, in you know, what they were, were telling me. Every, every day, every week. And so 
I, I struggled with religion until I was in my late 30s. And uh, my dad jokes now that, you know, yoga is the gateway to Buddhism. Um, <laughs> you know, I did start uh, doing things that I, I felt were what I believe to be more spiritual and more comforting. And it did lead to um, sort of the, the Western form of Buddhism and studying it and doing uh, taking retreats. And, and my husband did the same thing. My husband is actually now um, a meditation teacher, a certified meditation teacher. And and it was more that I felt Buddhism was a set of guidelines and practices that actually did have a positive impact on my life and did help me figure out to, how to live in a way that that resulted in less suffering um, than Catholicism. I mean, that was that was ultimately why I gravitated toward it. And how much has that meant to you? You're in a very high-pressured mm. position now, leader of this movement, a, a, a perpetual target of uh, the pro-gun forces, the NRA. Um, we'll get into that more a little bit later, but how has, how has this helped you? Well, certainly meditation, uh, you know, it, it is a practice where the thoughts that come into your mind, and, you know, we have many of those on a daily basis, that... that uh, you can sort of ignore that noise and and focus on a peace of mind. And so I do think there's real value to that. Uh, but I would also say on the flip side, uh, a lot of Buddhism is about managing your ego. And it is easy when you're leading, I think, a, one of the largest grassroots movements in the country um, to make things be more about you than about the issue or the the other people. And, and I do feel like uh, this has been an important practice for me as part of Buddhism to make sure that um, we are centering the work on, on what really matters. You went off to the University of Missouri in Columbia and you went and with the idea that you were going to be an investigative reporter. Uh, they have a great journalism school there. Why did you, uh, why did you, why were you interested in that? I really, uh, first of all, I love writing, um, especially uh, nonfiction and, and reporting. And, and I was a reporter at the Dallas Observer um, and a very junior reporter. You know, I wrote things about uh, like restaurant reviews and that kind of thing. And I, I just admired investigative journalists my whole life. Uh, 60 Minutes, you know, was was always on Sundays we went to mass. And then later that day, we would all watch 60 Minutes together. Um, I, I was obsessed with Watergate as a child, which is sort of a strange obsession to have uh, as a kid growing up in the 80s. It, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of where I thought I was headed. Um, but interestingly, the first job I got out of college was actually to to write, but to write speeches um, and to be involved involved in politics for then Governor Missouri um, Mel Carnahan, and so that that sort of changed that whole trajectory of what I had planned for myself. He was a great guy, and tragically was killed in a plane crash um, uh, while he was governor of the state. What what did you learn from your early? career in, in government and, and working around elected officials? Well, first of all, I, I learned that it is very male-centered. Um, and, you know, I, I would often joke that uh, lawmakers at the state house it was like a spring break for middle-aged white men. Uh, and as a, a young 20-something woman in that environment, it was um, certainly challenging. And yet, you know, you were talking about what an amazing person Governor Carnahan was and his whole family, frankly. Yes. And, and he truly was um, such a wonderful man and, and, and so well-versed in, in knitting together, I thought, um, both sides of the aisle on, on tough issues in the state. Yes, he was a Democrat, but um, he was, you know, in many ways beloved. And, and I think would have eventually been been the senator of the state, uh, from the state. But it was um, it was trial by fire in many ways, and and it made me very interested in politics. Uh, but it also made me a, a very fierce advocate for women having a voice, having a role, because I saw, at least in in that state government, and and I now know that is the case in most. Uh, state legislatures across the country. Um, as this proverb goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you are probably on the menu. And to see mostly white men 
in charge of the political process showed me what a disadvantage are, women are and, and, and also black and brown people when, when they're not represented. Yeah, that also has a, an impact, not just in terms of specific issues, but in terms of how policymakers look at issues and, you know, that lack of diversity, that lack of different vantage points on those issues is very, you know, and we've now we see, and you were involved in 2018 in a large influx of women in Congress and, uh, you know, who are stellar members mm -hmm. and uh, changing the, the nature of that of that institution. You also, you married right out of college and you had three children. You, you left government and you took on some pretty high-powered public relations jobs, first uh, for uh, Fleischman Hilliard, which is a big public relations firm, and then uh, for a series of large corporations. Um, so that must have been hard, balancing those responsibilities. Yeah, you know, I... Um I was an only child and my parents divorced after 26 years of marriage. And I think it is why I decided to marry my college sweetheart right after college graduation. I was only uh, 23 at the time. I got pregnant three months later. I had a baby. I got pregnant three months after that. <laughs> I finally figured out what was causing it and I uh, didn't have another baby until I was 29. But uh, I did have three kids uh, before I was 30 and at the same time was kind of the the breadwinner in the family and always very ambitious and, and really loved what I did, um, particularly around crisis communications, which has served me well. You know, if they say if you do something 10,000 hours, you become an expert and certainly um, creating a brand, writing messaging, um, a, a look and feel for an organization and understanding the impact of that. I think all of those skills were so crucial in, in being able to found Moms Demand Action. But it's a different kind of thing. I mean, generally, crisis communications in for corporations is not good, meaning they did something that created controversy or they've been attacked in some way. Uh, you worked for uh, Bayer Crop Science and for a couple of healthcare concerns. So I'm sure that there was a lot of incoming mm -hmm. uh, there. How did you process that? I mean, your job was to was to help these corporations out of the jam they're in. Did you find yourself saying, man, how how they get in this jam in the first place? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it depended on the crisis. You know, sometimes it was um, an employee, you know, that had been killed. And, and you have to come in and explain what the safety protocols are and explain how the, the company is going to manage it and improve and, and change. And, and I think that's all important um, to a brand. And, and there was also, you know, product promotion. When I, when I worked, for example, at, at General Electric, I worked for the healthcare company. And, you know, we were constantly developing the, the world's smallest stethoscope, right? And trying to explain what the value of that is um, for America. And, and, and how that can be used in everyday medicine. Um, so I, I really do think, yes, it's stressful and it's hard work and you get calls in the middle of the night and you're expected to um, you know, work pretty much all week long. Um, but again, I, I've never been busier than I am in this position as a full-time volunteer working on gun violence prevention. So I think a lot of that stuff was vital training that I needed in order to be successful in this role. Yeah. Is there a difference between working 24-7 on behalf of a cause mm. than on behalf of a company. Absolutely. I, look, I've never worked harder in my life than I am right now as a full-time volunteer, and yet I've never been more fulfilled. Um, you know, selling widgets and, and defending companies and, and all of that, you know, it's it's interesting work. Um, it's It's important work, but it's also, I don't think, as rewarding. I mean, I feel like being an activist, which I never imagined, you know, that I, that would be what I would end up doing, um, is is so rewarding and so fulfilling on many different levels, none of which were being met, for me at least, in the corporate world. I wanted to ask you uh, how you became an activist, but before we get to the, uh, the origin story here, uh, just one more question on this. When you were in those roles, were you called on, it was before the Me Too era, where there's sexual harassment 
issues that you had to deal with? No, you know, I because I was in the Midwest, honestly, we were mainly working on food supply issues, right? So if you remember when E. coli um, was such a huge crisis mm-hmm. um, and, and mad cow disease and yes. all of those things, really, I was focused very much on, on agriculture um, and, and for specific brands that would have other issues, but mainly it was, it was food and, and ag. So how did you, t- tell me how this whole thing happened that you, you know, you had this sort of moment in which your life was transformed and then you helped transform a lot of other lives. But what, what uh, t- describe the moment to me. I had been, um, after the, the career we were just talking about, I had been a stay-at-home mom for about five years. And I was, um, I had gotten remarried. My husband and I, uh, my first husband and I divorced. I, I was in a marriage to a man still uh, with with two children. So I became a stepmom and and we were blending our family of five kids. And so I thought, okay, you know, we've got kids all the way from elementary school through freshman in college. So I think I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go back to work at the end of probably five years. And at the exact end of that five years, I was in my home in uh, suburban Indianapolis folding laundry and a very cold winter day. Um, and, and I can remember seeing suddenly the breaking news alerts on my television saying there was an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. And I sort of put everything down and sat there and watched this tragedy unfold. And, and anyone else who remembers that day, I'm sure, was doing the same thing, that, that we were so aghast and so horrified at, at this active shooter situation unfolding before our eyes. Um, terrorized families running through parking lots, children being marched out of the school. And by the end of it, 20 first graders and six educators had been murdered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. I, like everyone, was devastated. Um, and, and, And then something in me changed when I started to see pundits and politicians being interviewed on, on news channels, and they were saying, Somehow the solution was more guns, right? That if only those teachers had been armed, it would have stopped this school shooting. And I knew nothing about gun laws. I knew nothing about gun violence. I knew nothing about organizing. I only knew that that was a lie. I read somewhere that you had 75 Facebook followers at the time (laughs) back, back there in Zionsville, Indiana. Yeah, I was not a social media phenomenon. Uh, I didn't even have a Twitter handle. Uh, Sarah Brady, James Brady's wife, eventually said to me, you have got to get on Twitter. But I I went online and I thought, I, I'm just going to join this as, as a volunteer for another organization. I certainly never imagined I would start an organization, but I, I couldn't find anything like I was looking for. And, and as someone who was growing up in the 80s, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving had such a huge impact on on me and, and on culture. Um, and, you know, people who were driving drunk and killing their friends and families were being let go. People were saying you couldn't punish someone um, because they'd already suffered enough. And, and these women came along and these moms and they said, you know, laws are the moral underpinning of our society. If we don't hold people accountable, these tragedies will keep happening. And they were right. And and so that was how I wanted to be a part of this issue, right? This sort of a badass army of women across the country banding together and saying, nope, this is not what we are going to allow in America. Uh, and and so I just figured, okay, I know how to start a Facebook page and, and I'll start one and, and have this conversation, I thought, online. And you created this thing called One Million Moms for Gun Control. And uh, <laughs> you, you got a call from... Uh from a congresswoman in Washington who had some advice for you. Yes. Well, Carolyn McCarthy, who became a congresswoman after her son and and husband were shot on the Long Island Railroad, uh, called me. I remember standing in my kitchen uh, and seeing the D.C. number and was just shocked, you know, that she had tracked me down. And she said, look, you know, gun control is is a verboten phrase in, in the Beltway. We don't say that. And in Indiana, we did, right? Um, and, and so that was part of the issue with the name. The other part of it was uh, my daughter, uh, is, who is gay, one of my, my four girls, um, said, you know, mom, One Million Moms is an anti-gay group trying to get JCPenney not to use Ellen DeGeneres as their spokeswoman. <laughs> uh, so there were, <laughs> the name was problematic, and it shows you what happens when you name something without a focus group in your kitchen, which I knew uh-huh. better. Uh, but 
Moms to Ban Action was something we'd been chanting at marches and rallies. And so that was just the logical name change. So you changed it to Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, and it took off in a way. And obviously, Newtown sort of shocked the conscience of the nation. By the way, on that point, I mean, I was one of them, and, you know, uh, who could not have been moved by that? But I live in Chicago where kids are getting killed every single, you know, certainly every week, if not every day. It's a frequent occurrence. Mm. And it does there is this issue of the fact that this is a way of life in some communities in our country and yet it didn't stir the conscience of the country it doesn't stir the conscience of the country in the way that newtown did which may go to the larger discussion we've had about race and culture i agree with you and you know i was living in a bubble um and not realizing that over 100 Americans are shot and killed in this country every day, whether it's gun suicide or gun homicide uh, in rural communities and city centers. And, you know, shame on me for not getting involved until I was worried about my kids being safe in their their schools. You know, mass shootings and and school shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. In fact, police shootings every year in America kill more people than mass shootings. But we quickly realized as an organization that we have to address all of the gun violence in this country. It all matters. It is all preventable and senseless. And, and um, I'm, I'm grateful we evolved uh, after you know, we came together because of this school shooting. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. Twenty-four hours after you launched this effort, you began getting really nasty threats uh, at your home, threats of violence uh, toward you and and your daughters. And uh, there's one story that really I I found remarkable, which is when a police officer uh, in the early days when you lived in Indiana uh, came to your house and he, he, he basically gave you advice as to why this was all happening. What, what did he say? Yeah, I, I had been getting calls, texts, letters, people driving by my home. Um, I never imagined, you know, that, that I would be a public figure. So all of my private information was public. And someone said to me, you better call the police and just give them a heads up. You know, we don't want them to be caught off guard if you need them or if something happens. So they sent an officer to my home and I explained to him what was going on. And and he just looked at me and said, well, that's what you get when you mess with the Second Amendment, ma'am. And it really was then and there that I realized, you know, I had sort of two choices. I could back down or I could double down. You know, I could decide that these threats and this intimidation, which was is meant to silence me and our volunteers who experience it as well. It's really just meant to make you sit down and shut up, um, that that I could make that be white noise. You know, it's almost like going back to the idea of meditation, that that could just be in the background and that I would move forward. And, and instead of being afraid, I would be angry, which I was. I was so angry that this was happening in this country. Um, and, and it was in the early days that I made that decision, and I have never looked back. My family has never been afraid for me, or at least they've never told me they didn't want me to do something. And I, I just refuse um, to to back down. And and look, it it is true. I think to many moms in this country, there are 80 million moms, regardless of per- political persuasion. If we lose our children, we have nothing left to lose. So. We, we shouldn't be afraid of someone, you know, who is making threats to us. So you, you launched this, this campaign and around Newtown, and everyone in the country, you know, the president was obviously, President Obama, deeply invested in trying to make some basic changes like universal background checks at the time, which had broad public support, uh, and, and nothing happened. And I know you trained a lot of your, of your organization on 
the effort to get something to happen in the wake of, of Newtown. There was ultimately a vote in the Senate over a compromise uh, amendment that would require background checks from all commercial gun dealerships, close some of the loopholes uh, called the Manchin-Toomey bill, and that failed uh, in the Senate in the spring of 2013. How did you feel at that point? You know, you, you'd run, uh, I, sometimes I wonder whether you might feel like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill and having it roll down again. Because even, you know, since 2014, uh, gun uh, deaths in this country have increased by, I don't know, 30% or something while you're doing this work. So a, a couple things about the Manchin-Toomey vote. Yes, we we thought, okay, this is going to happen. Of course, Congress will act. There's just been this horrific mass shooting inside an elementary school. Uh, we'll work on this. And, and I honestly thought, we thought, okay, we'll go back to our normal lives, right? And the fact that the Manchin-Toomey bill failed by just a handful of votes in the Senate uh, was really important to making us the movement we are now, because many of our volunteers pivoted and started doing this work in state houses and boardrooms where they lived. And we have racked up huge wins, right? Whether it's passing uh, laws to close the background check loophole in states, whether it's uh, something called the red flag law, whether it's disarming domestic abusers. I mean, we've had dozens and dozens of, of strong life-saving wins on top of the fact that we have about a 90% track record of stopping the NRA's agenda in state houses every year for the last five years. But going back to the, the vote, what I think is so interesting in retrospect is that even though it failed by a handful of votes, some of the senators who voted against the Manchin-Toomey bill were, were Democrats. And they thought the NRA would have their back if they, if they voted the way they wanted them to. And, and a really important lesson was learned, I think, by Democrats, which was with friends like the NRA who needs enemies. Because the NRA then went in and, and backed their opponents. Not a single one of those senders who voted against Manchin-Toomey still has their job. And, and I think an interesting example is Mark Pryor in Arkansas, who voted against Manchin-Toomey. And then the NRA went in and invested millions and millions of dollars in Tom Cotton's campaign. He became the senator. Um, and, and it was, I think, a moment that showed Democrats that they can vote their conscience on this issue, because they're never going to have the NRA's support. You didn't start off as a political organization, or you weren't in a campaign-oriented organization. Was it that Manchin-Toomey vote that, when did you come to the realization that in order to affect policy, you were going to have to affect politics and elect candidates around the country who were more open to gun safety reforms? That became very clear early on. We started in December of 2012. The Manchin-Toomey vote was in the spring of 2013. And as I said, we, we started doing this work in state houses where we saw governors would act, places like uh, Connecticut and Colorado and Delaware. Um, and we also saw that we were going to spend a ton of time playing defense at the state level, right? Because the NRA was always going to be trying to pass forcing guns onto college campuses, uh, arming teachers, something called permitless carry, stand your ground laws. Um, and, and it became clear that, that if we couldn't change the hearts and minds of those lawmakers, we needed to change the people who were in those jobs. And because we partnered early on with Mayors Against Illegal Guns and- It's Mayor Bloomberg's origin. Right, yeah. as, a, as, a mayor, as a major donor, we were able to start playing in electoral politics. I mean, if you look at 2018, we outspent and outworked the NRA. In 2019 in Virginia, we outspent them eight to one. So it's become a really important part of our strategy. Assess the NRA right now as a political force because they have gone through some rough years uh, internal, you know, internally and externally that went to the finances, the organization, the sponsorship. Talk to me about the NRA and how you view the NRA as an organization. Well, the NRA had a choice after the Sandy Hook School tragedy, too, just like I was talking about backing down or, or doubling down, and they decided to double down. The NRA had a press conference uh, several weeks after that tragedy, and that's when they said the infamous line about the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Instead of just saying, yeah, we support a background check on every gun sale. And, and honestly, I, again, I don't know that we'd be where we are today had they done that. But instead, they doubled down. And 
in part because the NRA is being pulled to the right by state gun groups, right? Every state has a gun group, a gun extremist group that is believes that any law whatsoever is somehow a slippery slope to undoing the Second Amendment. And so just like the Tea Party pulled Republicans to the right, these groups have pulled the NRA to the right. And they have not passed a single piece of gun safety legislation uh, that I've seen in the last almost eight years. And that has weakened them significantly. They're no longer uh, in step with mainstream America. They don't even have the support of their own membership. 74% of NRA members support background checks, unlike the NRA's leadership. 80% of gun owners, only one in 10 of whom even belong to the NRA. And, you know, the NRA had a boogeyman in the White House for eight years. They made Obama into a boogeyman and used him to sell guns, right? They juiced gun sales by exploiting tragedy, exploiting fear. And then they helped elect, helped elect Donald Trump. They spent about $30 million on his campaign. And what happened? Gun sales dried up because there was no boogeyman to make people afraid. In fact, there are about $100 million in the hole on gun and, and accessory sales. I, I saw that uh, recently that gun sales are up now, uh, partly because of COVID-19. But with these polls showing, you know, one of the things that happened was after Obama got elected, there was a huge explosion of gun sales, ammunition sales, because there was this fear that Obama would seize everyone's guns and would make it more difficult to buy guns. And uh, I mean, do you think there's, with these polls showing Trump now uh, in jeopardy of losing that, uh, you're, you're seeing some of that effect again? I, I think it is the NRA and, and their ability to exploit tragedy, to exploit natural disasters. Look, we've seen it all the way back to Katrina. And so that's exactly what they did in this moment of crisis in, in the country is that they tried to make gun owners afraid um, and, and even non-gun owners that they needed a gun in the time of this crisis, right? And so meanwhile, every high-income country is dealing with COVID and only America is giving civilians easy access to arsenals and ammunition. Um, and, and we're seeing this historic number of gun sales in March and April exacerbate gun violence in America. We are seeing more domestic gun violence. We're seeing more unintentional shootings. We're seeing more gun suicides. And I really do think the the gun sales that we saw this spring are going to have tragic reverberations in this country for months and years after COVID is over. Yeah, well, part of it is that, um, you, you know, suicide, guns are, 51% of suicides are accomplished with guns. And we're in a period of time that is very stressful uh, for people, stressful emotionally, stressful economically, uh, if they're prone to depression, if they're prone to suicide. Uh, you know, that's a caustic mix, a greater availability of guns and a higher level of stress and anxiety. Yep, that's exactly right. People are feeling isolated, they're concerned about their economic future. Women are isolated with their abusers. Tens of millions of kids are unexpectedly at home from school. And we know before this crisis, 4.6 million kids already lived in homes with unsecured guns. So, you know, I, I have to say I'm very worried about the fall when kids start to go back to school. We know most school shooters in this country are students with easy access to guns. And we should all be worried. So you, you elected, uh, you were involved in electing a thousand uh, candidates around the country in 2018. And you've talked about the advances you've made uh, at the local and state level on red flag laws. Explain what red flag laws are, by the way. A red flag law essentially allows police or families, depending on, on which state you live in, to petition a judge for a restraining order that will remove the guns temporarily from someone who is a danger to themselves or others. And our organization got involved in this after the UCSB shooting in Santa Barbara, where um, a man who was armed, a young man, his parents had called the police before and said, you know, our, our kid is dangerous, he's armed. And police said, there's nothing that we can do. He's an adult, he doesn't have a criminal record, he's never been adjudicated mentally ill. And then, as we all know, he went on this horrific um, shooting spree. 
So we started working on that uh, in the state of California and passed that red flag law there. And now 20 states and Washington, D.C. have these laws that allow um, people to, to temporarily remove the guns from someone who's a danger to themselves or others. I mean, it's common sense. It's supported very widely by Republicans and Democrats alike. So I want to go back to the point I raised before, which is despite all your good work, and the election of these representatives and the changes in these state laws, the incidence of, uh, of gun homicides has, has, has really kind of exploded over the last six years or so. Why, why is that? And I mean, how effective have these laws been? Well, we look at the data and we know that states with the strongest gun laws um, have the fewest amount of gun deaths, whether that's gun homicide or gun suicide. So we know these laws work. Um, that's why it's so important that we have them at a federal level, because guns cross state lines as easily as cars do. Um, and, and there's also been, you know, a lot of gun sales. So if you, if you put four guns, uh, 400 million guns in the hands of civilians um, and you have very few gun laws, it is likely to give you the, a, a gun homicide rate that is 25 times that of other high income countries. And so that has been our goal is to restore the responsibilities that go along with gun rights, like a background check on every gun sale, like keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people and domestic abusers, like responsible gun storage. But I think what I have learned over the last eight years is that Congress is where this work ends. It's not where it begins. It's almost like marriage equality, right? You have to build momentum and support in the states and on the ground. Um, You have to do it legislatively electorally, culturally, and eventually you will get a president and a Congress that will do the right thing. And, and you know, we thought this work was going to get done in the spring of 2013. It may, may very well be that it gets done in the spring of 2021. A lot of, yeah, do you have hope that if, uh, if there is a Biden presidency and a Democratic Senate that you're going to be able to make advances on issues like background check? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to remember that when we flip the House, One of the first things they did, led by Lucy McBath, a former Moms to Man Action spokeswoman who's now a Georgia congresswoman, was to pass background checks. Essentially, the Manchin-Toomey bill was passed by the House to pass a bill that would close what's called the Charleston loophole to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, which includes a provision that would prohibit stalkers and dating partners from having easy access to guns. All of those things are sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now. So if we had Joe Biden as president, if we're able to flip the Senate, and I think both of those things are very possible, our organization will be spending $60 million in in November or before November. So I, I think that those things can get done. And then I do believe that Joe Biden will prioritize this issue um, and, and get get these bills passed and signed into law. I notice you have a picture of yourself with him featured on your <laughs> Twitter site. So I guess if he wants to stay there, he's got to move. Uh, he's got to move. On. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've met with him many times and, and I know this issue is near and dear mm-hmm. to his heart. And, and he's such an empathetic person, particularly when he's talking to gun violence survivors. And, and I think we will finally make progress at the federal level. Well, he certainly was uh, involved in the, in the 90s uh, on this issue and, uh, and the passage of an assault weapons ban. And your organization initially embraced that. It, it sort of fell out of your list of priorities. But a lot of these uh, mass shootings have been carried out using these you know, weapons of war, essentially, um, was, was it just a political decision on your part that that was too heavy a lift, or why, why did you? No, you know we have we have always supported an assault weapons ban. Um, there were issues with the assault weapons ban that existed in the '90s. Uh, gun manufacturers had figured out a way to get around the ban by some minor cosmetic tweaks to guns that then made the guns not included in the ban. For example, the gun that was used by the gunman in Sandy Hook, um, you know. It, it would have been prohibited, but with a few cosmetic changes, he could have used essentially the same gun. So it wasn't perfect. Um, that said, we have not seen a huge appetite among lawmakers at the federal or state level for an assault weapons ban. Um, we've helped pass them at a municipal level. We've passed them, for example, in Pittsburgh and in Boulder, Colorado. 
Um, but when we worked on one in, in Rhode Island, um, it, it really didn't go anywhere. So once lawmakers put these forward, um, we have been supportive. But when you look at data, what's also really important is a high capacity magazine ban. Um, to, to prohibit high capacity magazines, we see data that shows that those those um, prohibitions work. And the reason is because often these guns uh, malfunction in the middle of a, mal- a mass shooting and people have time to run away, which is just truly a horrific thought. But um, we support these high-capacity magazine bans. Uh, you know, Australia took a very, a very aggressive step to basically ban all these weapons and recover all these weapons. And, you know, you look around the world and those countries with fewer guns, not surprisingly, have fewer gun crimes. Um, we have, the, as you mentioned, 400 uh, million weapons out there for a country of 330 million men, women, and children. That seems like uh, an enormous, <laughs> an enormous hill to climb here to try and control violence. Well, it is. And again, when you have 400 million guns in the hands of civilians and very few gun laws, not strong enough gun laws. Um, That is why we have a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any other high income country. And essentially, for decades, gun lobbyists, gun extremists have been writing our nation's gun laws. And we have absolutely turned the tide on that. Um, That is not the case in most places anymore. And that's just in a matter of eight years uh, that we've made this this huge progress toward passing gun safety laws. But Shannon and I, you know, I'm I'm not hiding my my own <laughs> point of view on this. I, I'm very much supportive of everything that you're doing. I guess my question is, how much of a difference will these laws make? I mean, they will make a difference. We know that background checks every year thwart the purchase of weapons by people who shouldn't have them, but I'm just weighing the impact of the law against the impact of all these guns already on the streets. I I mean, it's a great point, but a lot of of illegal guns start as legal guns, and then they're exchanged without a background check, right? So we're never going to stop all the gun, gun violence in this country, and no one law is certainly going to stop all gun violence. I mean, if you compare it to uh, vehicle fatalities in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't just one speed limit that's, that helped reduce traffic fatalities uh, almost by half. It was a combination of things. It was rumble strips. It was enhanced car technology. It was seatbelt laws. It was speed limits. It was all of these things coming together to help reduce the amount of deaths. In America on gun violence, we haven't even tried trying right? And so all of these preventable senseless deaths um, are, are in part because there aren't stronger laws. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. How does it impact on you personally because you must come into contact on an almost daily basis with uh, both moms and dads who have lost their children. I, I watch the news uh, in Chicago, and I watch these anguished uh, moms of uh, of children who uh, some you know are quite small who were just they were just in the wrong place and they got hit by a stray bullet and they lost their their child and it just rips you up. And these conversations just must be so difficult uh, for you. How, how has that impacted on you? Yeah, you know, I am not a gun violence survivor, although in this country, you know, we're so exposed to gun violence that it's almost like we all have this secondhand trauma. But people who are impacted by gun violence and who still use that pain to help other people to save the lives of perfect strangers, that to me is heroic. And it really does motivate me to keep going. And yes, there are days when a story brings me very, very low and I have a, I have a hard time dealing with 
just the sadness and and the senselessness of it all. But I have so much hope because I know that we're winning when I look at what's happened over the last eight years. Um, I believe that we will win in November. And so that gives me continued hope. And if if people who have survived the, the unimaginable and have come out the other side as activists, then then certainly I can do this work too. Yeah, I, uh, I ask you that in part because uh, my valiant wife, Susan, um, started an organization 20-something years ago uh, called Cure Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy mm. because our child's life was just torn apart by epilepsy. And, and most weeks uh, since then, and sometimes on a daily basis, she hears from mothers who are just starting down that road or just lost a child to epilepsy, which is a huge yeah. killer. Uh, and, um, and there are days, and she's done, they've done wonderful things. They've raised 60 million or something dollars for research, and they've done wonderful, wonderful work and changed the whole discussion about epilepsy, but there are days when she just is so dispirited because she knows uh, that someone is going through the terror and loss that, uh, that we felt, and so many others we know have felt, and it's like, like, again, it's Sisyphus, you know, how do you get that boulder <laughs> to stay up the hill? How do you get to that point? And it's got to be it's got to be wearing uh, on you. Yeah, I, I think my personality is such, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation. I I have used my anger to fuel my activism and I'm so outraged by this, the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that ever existed writing laws that are killing Americans. And I just find that to be so outrageous that I can't stop doing this work until that's fixed. And I I do believe, you know, our hundreds of thousands of volunteers, nearly 6 million supporters now, 375,000 donors, uh, they feel the same way. And, And so many people join us because they send their kindergartner to class to learn. And instead, that kid is hiding in the bathroom of their classroom, essentially rehearsing their death in case an active shooter comes in, as though these active shootings are acts of nature and not man-made acts of cowardice, because our lawmakers have the power to stop this. So, you know, I, I just can't imagine giving up until we've, we've passed everything we need to to make Americans safe, and then, and then the next generation uh, can can hold those wins and, and make even more progress. You know, you mentioned these active shooter drills, and I talked about the inner cities uh, where uh, there is uh, rampant gun violence. And you think about these young kids, and it's not just uh, it's not just the impact of of being shot or seeing. It, it's also the impact of the PTSD that goes along with it. The, the, the having to live, no child should have to live with that fear. Uh, and I find it horrifying. I, I understand why active shooting drills are conducted, but I find it manifestly uh, depressing to think about the impact it must have on a young mind that shouldn't, should be you know, worried about what they're reading in a book or what they're learning uh, uh, in a lab or, you know, or, or enjoying their lives in a playground? Well, we have data that specifically shows that active shooter drills do cause depression and anxiety in children, including sleeplessness, worsening school performance. Um, and, and so if you are living in a community where gun violence is a threat to you every single day, imagine the impact that that has on a, on a growing mind. Yeah. You've said that you're a supporter uh, of the Second Amendment. Um, and A, I wanted you to articulate why you feel strongly about that. You know, that debate has basically been settled by the courts, but how the Second Amendment has been interpreted. Um, is that just a matter of, I mean, you're, you're obviously very politically, you, you've learned very quickly, and you're very politically savvy. Is that like table stakes to be heard in the debate, or is it something that you deeply believe? No, I mean, I, to your point, I think the courts have been clear that um, the the Second Amendment affords Americans the right 
uh, to a gun for self-defense. But the Second Amendment has been perverted by the gun lobby in this country. And the idea um, that, that you can't regulate gun rights is absurd. I mean, you know, even the Heller decision disputed that. So, you know, we have a lot of volunteers who are gun owners or their partners are gun owners. Um, This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. You know, there was a debate in the legislature in Illinois some years ago when a state senator named Barack Obama (laughs) was uh, debating some of these kinds of laws with a colleague from a rural area. And he said, you know, I know you grew up with this was this is a family rite of passage, a family tradition. Your father took you out hunting. His father took him out hunting. And I know how important it is to you. In my neighborhood, mothers sit by the window hoping that their kids will come home alive from school because Mm. of rampant gunfire on the streets. And he said, there has to be a way to preserve your traditions and save our children. And I thought, I always thought that was a very eloquent way of positing the, uh, this, this debate, uh, rather than as an either or kind of, of uh, discussion. Well, in, in mainstream America, again, 90% of Americans, 80% of gun owners, even 74% of NRA members support stronger gun laws. Um, this is, you know, sort of the last gasps of power, I think, of gun lobbyists, of gun extremists who have for too long been dictating our gun laws. And to finally change that out, it, it's going to take several several election cycles, right? This work is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to be in activism for the long haul, show up at every gun bill hearing, uh, meet with your lawmakers over and over again, even if they don't agree with you, work on campaigns. Um, It's what I call the unglamorous heavy lifting of grassroots activism. I think women are uniquely cut out for that work um, and have been in this country for for centuries. And so I I am hopeful, um, to your point, that, that that is exactly what will happen, you know, that that we can save lives by passing the laws that we've seen work at the state level, that we can pass them at a federal level. I've seen the power of moms in my own wife's uh, movement <laughs> to change the way the scientific community looked at uh, epilepsy and to provoke uh, new approaches to it. Um, and you wrote this great book called Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World, which um, is a great title. Um, <laughs> tell me in this. Uh, tell me in this election campaign. We talked about what you did in the last campaign. What above and beyond what you did in the last campaign uh, are you doing this campaign? Obviously, you're focusing on the presidential race, but presumably on races all over the country. Yeah, I, I am um, thrilled to say you know that we're spending sixty million dollars, not just to elect Joe Biden, but also to elect gun sense candidates up and down the ballot from the Senate and the House down to the state legislative level. Um, We have six million supporters, and so we're mobilizing them um, virtually right now, but getting new voters registered. Yeah, you guys are well equipped for that, right? Though You you, you started off as an online effort, so this whole thing is not new to you. uh, No. Using... uh, using the tools that we have to use now? We have not skipped a beat. Um, I have been to all 50 states on Zoom. And, uh, you know, our work output is actually increased because so many millions of students are home. Um, They're working to register their peers to vote uh, using technology like Hustle, which is an amazing peer-to-peer app. Um, we're also using our Gun Sense Action Network to make calls um, into states, telling them, you know, who to vote for, who the Gun Sense candidates are, when, where, how to vote. Um, and so far, you know, we have focused specifically uh, on rolling out our plans in Texas, where we're going to spend eight million dollars to to flip the state house, um, and then hopefully win new congressional seats in places like Dallas, Houston, El Paso. Um, we're going to spend $5 million in Arizona, uh, hopefully defeat Martha McSally and, and flip both uh, chambers of the state legislature there. Um, and, and we've just announced that we're going to spend at least $5 million in uh, the state of North Carolina, uh, where we can hopefully defeat 
Senator Tom Tillis and elect Cal Cunningham. And so, you know, these these plans are continuing to roll out, but we are going to have a huge presence. $60 million is twice what the NRA spent uh, in 2016. It's twice what we spent in 2018. And hopefully it will change uh, the face of, of politics in America. Yeah, because honestly, um, one of the reasons the NRA has been able to hold sway is the fear that if you defied them, that you would be uh, defeated, as you mentioned earlier. Um, if you remove that, or if you create a counterweight, it does move the underlying issue. Um, what, what do you expect the NRA will be doing, and what do you see them doing now? I think the NRA is spending more money on uh, legal bills than the election, probably, given all the under, the investigations they're under for sweetheart deals and self-dealing and mismanaging uh, their, their dollars. Um, they are weaker than they have ever been. Our movement, our organization is stronger than it's ever been. I would never count the NRA down and out. You know, they're just waiting for a, a Democratic president or Senate so that they can, again, juice gun sales. But if we can keep our, our foot on their neck, um, and elect lawmakers who will pass common sense gun laws, they will never have the same amount of power they once did. You, you talk about them juicing gun sales. How much is the NRA uh, a lobbying arm of the, uh, of the gun industry? And how much of it is an ideological organization? Or is it a lobbying organization that manipulates ideology in order to uh, serve the interests of the industry? The latter. They are they are primarily a lobbying organization. In 2018, they spent less than 10% of their budget on gun safety, like training. Um, that, that rhetoric is a front for what they really are, which is an organization that works to loosen gun laws so that they can sell guns on behalf of gun manufacturers. I mean, you know, people talk about the NRA membership as though that's what makes them powerful, and it doesn't. Um, the vast majority of their annual budget, which at one point was about $350 million, comes from gun manufacturers, right? That is, is their goal at the end of the day. It is to protect and increase gun sales. And what, uh, just in closing, uh, do you see yourself doing this work for the rest of your life? And, <laughs> and when will you, when, when, what will be enough for you? When will you say, I've done what I can, it's time to pass the torch to some to someone else, you're relatively young. You could do this for a long time. <laughs> relatively young, uh, I'll be fifty in January, and I, I'm hoping that's around the time that. To some people, that's young. <laughs> I'm hoping that's around the time that I'll see Joe Biden uh, signing stronger gun laws at a federal level. But no, I I don't think I will will do this work forever. I, it wouldn't be a successful organization again if it were just about about me and my leadership. You know, I believe that I've helped create an organization that will last into perpetuity whether I'm at the helm or not. And, you know, I don't know what's what's next for me. Certainly I've I've considered politics. Um yeah. I, I've considered That was my next question. I've considered gardening full time, right? Like there are a lot of, of possibilities. Um but but it is important that this organization exists and always exists because even after we win, we will have to protect the gains we've made. So not impossible that we might see your name on a ballot someday. You know, I never say never. It is not impossible, but I, I, I will say... <laughs> see, that answer certifies you as a, as a potential future candidate right there because that's a very good political answer. Well, I will say, David, that uh, I really do enjoy helping other women run for office. We have... A um, hundred volunteers who are running just this election cycle up and down the ballot across the country. And as I've mentioned, we've elected, helped elect our volunteers to offices, everything, you know, from city council and school board all the way up to Congress. And I hope that everyone who is listening to us right now, particularly women, uh, will think about uh, whether they, they can run and, and that there's really a moral imperative for them to do so. Uh, Shannon Watts, it's great to be with you. Congratulations on your on your work, and I look forward to seeing you down the line. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN including Courtney Coop, 
Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.